Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We will discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of the Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm here today with Musa Vogel. Musa is the Director of Qualitative Research at Hanover Research. She was previously at Clemson for 15 years and started the Business Anthropology Certificate that you've seen around on the internet. So today we'll be talking about, um, well, you know, we'll touch on the certificate, but we're also going to be talking about what it really means to sort of lead a leader, uh, lead a research team. And we're going to talk a little bit about the transition from academia to business. So Melissa, before we kind of get into some of those things, you want to maybe just start by telling us kind of how you came into anthropology? Sure. Yeah. And thank you so much for inviting me, Matt. I really appreciate it. So, yeah, growing up, um, I was very fortunate that my parents liked to travel and that they took my sister and I with them. And on many of those trips, we went uh, either out west in the United States to various um, Native American sites and reservations and such. And even on one trip to Mexico to a Maya site down there. Um, And was always I was always interested in learning about the rest of the world, learning other languages. And so I actually went to college planning to be an international relations uh, political science major and then realized that a lot of those folks were planning to be lawyers and I had no interest in being a lawyer. <laughs> I just wanted to travel the world and learn about people uh, and, and cultures and languages. And so I discovered anthropology really after I got to college and loved it and loved all uh, my professors um, and just decided this was, this was it for me. You know, it's funny. I, having had conversations with you, I think you would have been a good lawyer. <laughs> my dad thinks so too. He would have preferred that. <laughs> <laughs> well, most parents would prefer anything to anthropology. I think. <laughs> yeah. It's well, a funny story. So when I told my dad, I was switching my major he said, what? You want to be poor for the rest of your life? I said, yes, yeah. dad, that's my plan to be poor for the rest of my life. But when I became a successful tenured professor, he changed his tune. So, you know, sometimes you can prove your parents wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, a theme of the podcast and a theme of today is that there is actually, you know, good paying jobs out there for us in business anthropology. Not to say exactly. that you can't make any money in academia, but um you know, there's very, uh, you know, there's family sustaining salaries out there in business for researchers. And so um, while maybe anthropologists were less well off at some point in history today, you know, for those of us who are practicing, you know, it, it can be 
a, uh, you know, we don't have to be poor anymore, which is an upside. And that's, again, that's kind of a lot of what we're trying to show on this podcast and through all the other business anthropology efforts that we're kind of engaged in. And so, um, but thanks for sharing, you know, your background. So, you know, also kind of worth pointing out, you you spent quite a bit of time then working in the field as an archaeologist. And um, while I have talked to a few archaeologists on the show, maybe one or two others, you know, it's, it's less common. And so, you know, before we kind of get into the, the nitty gritty of, of the, the business component, you want to maybe talk a little bit about archaeology and maybe we can kind of you know, get into how you think that actually has helped you, whereas maybe some people don't think it's, you know, the right fit? Yeah, I I did want to mention that I, I want current students or recent grads of anthropology, especially in the U.S., where most of them go through a four fields or three fields program, to know that the stuff you're learning in either your major or your graduate program is extremely applicable to business and and your skills are all transferable. Uh, You just have to know how to reinterpret those for a business audience. And it doesn't really matter which subfield you specialized in. Um, You know, for example, so as an archaeologist, one thing that sometimes distinguishes us from the other subfields is that we always work in teams. So there's no such thing, the whole, you know, Indiana Jones thing, as much as we love the Hollywood, you know, attention, that's all a myth, right? We don't ever work alone, right? Very rarely do we do anything alone. And so you learn very early on in the process how to both be a good team member and then eventually to be a team leader and a team manager. And especially once you're running your own projects, you learn so many project management and people management skills out of necessity. And frankly, if you don't, you're you're probably going to have trouble in your projects because those skills are really essential to running a successful uh, archaeological project. And of course, I'm sure there's there's cultural and biological anthropologists who also work in teams. It just seems to be a little less common on the academic side. Um, So I think those are really important skills that I picked up as an archaeologist. Um, All of the ability to write, to speak in public, to present your ideas, Um, Granted, you use a different style in the academic world than you would in the business world, but you have to be able to articulate what you want to say, both in writing and verbally, especially if you're teaching. And and teaching, I think, for anyone who's, you know, had a chance to to teach even as a grad assistant um, is really important because you have to learn how to speak to different levels of audiences, right? So you're not just going to be talking to your peers or to people who are more advanced than you, you're going to have to teach things to folks who have no idea what you're talking about. And that's extremely applicable to the business world. You're going to be dealing with a, a huge range of audiences and the ability to translate your learning and your your findings to a wide range of, of participants and, and audiences is extremely useful. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a great point about teaching and something that hasn't, I don't think has come up yet, um, but it's certainly well said given the way that we do need to present frequently to, you know, people again, who in business really don't understand what we do first as anthropologists and, you know, in say in my space, what like UX is or what product management is, a lot of that is still, you know, new and young. So frequently we're talking to people who don't really understand, you know, what it is. So that it's a great point. Um, also in there though, on the teams and yeah, I, I went to an applied program, so I didn't have the classic sort of uh, you know, four-field kind of training. 
are you in, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure what an archaeological project really looks like, but are you in like a, you know, team of diverse stakeholders where you're also working with a lot of other professions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so just to give you a, an example, I spent most of my career working in Peru and, um, you're not only dealing with an international team because I I brought students from the U.S. I even occasionally had ones from other countries like Canada. Um, you have Peruvian students and colleagues who get involved, so folks at different levels. You hire local folks to work on your project, so folks who have absolutely no academic training in what you're doing at all. Um, and you're probably going to have an interdisciplinary team as well because you can't be a specialist in all things that you're studying. So, you know, I had an osteologist to focus on the human skeletal remains. I had a, a botanical and faunal remains specialist to help me identify all of those remains. You know, you, you recruit people that specialize in certain areas, even things like skill sets, like we would hire an artist to draw things for us. Um, unfortunately, we relied on me for the photography, which was probably not always the best uh, since I'm not a formally trained photographer. But yeah, so, I mean, you get used to working, uh, you know, with interdisciplinary, for some of us, international teams. Uh, you have a whole range of stakeholders. You know, for example, my projects always had what we call a public interest component. So we would have some way that we were engaging with the local community um, and trying to do it on their terms. So what they were interested in, not just what we were interested in, which mm -hmm. in the case of uh, my last project, they wanted to learn English. And I was really lucky that one of the grad students working with me was willing to volunteer his time on Saturdays and go out and hang out with them and, you know, teach them a little bit of English in his spare time, which was just above and beyond. So shout out to David Pacifico, <laughs> who's now at uh, Wisconsin-Madison teaching. So, um, but yeah, so you, you really have to learn how to manage those different uh, stakeholders and in most cases deal with government regulations which can be great preparation for going into any kind of government-related work because you have to get permits and you have to file reports and you have to, you know, get on, for example, the National Registry of Archaeologists in the country that you're working in. Um, so there's just a, a, a huge laundry list of things that you're going to learn in that path that are then going to be applicable to the private sector or to government or nonprofit jobs also. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I, I, you know, I didn't know the details again of any kind of archaeological project, but it it really does sound like it is, a, you know, quite a good fit given all those, um, you know, given the sort of diversity of people that you're working with. The certainly the amount of project management that would go into leading that and coordinating that across borders, and so that's pretty cool and um, definitely helps me better understand, uh, you know why that's such a good fit and will kind of help me uh, keep that in mind going forward for anybody else I talk to. So it helps with mixed methods, too, because, you know, most archaeologists have to use both quantitative and qualitative measures in their work. So at least in my opinion, you have to be comfortable moving between both, you know, a scientific method approach where you have hypotheses that you're testing and you have measurable uh, data that you're collecting. I mean, one of the major things we do that's very useful in the business world is we work with spatial data. So we work with things like ArcGIS to map spatial distribution of things. Um, but you still have that qualitative component because you're still interpreting 
lots of things that are subjective and that don't have, you know, um, clearly identified meanings to them. And so you have to interpret that. So you have to be flexible about moving between both the scientific and humanistic or interpretive I'm going to throw in epistemology there. Maybe that's not a good idea for this audience. I don't know. But you have to be able to move between those worlds and be okay with that, which, you know, was really interesting to me when I moved more into, you know, not instead of just doing the occasional business project to doing it more full time. It was fascinating to me that people are very hung up on one or the other, you know, quantitative or qualitative and uh, I think that's a little bit unique that we're able to move back and forth between those worlds pretty easily. Yeah, no, it's also a great point and very much like, you know, many of our jobs. I mean, in you know, again, in the UX space, there are some clearly defined kind of qual roles for sure. Um, but I have always found in my experience, you know, it's a little bit of, of both. And so it's, it definitely gives me a new outlook on archaeology. So thanks for sharing that. <laughs> now, you didn't, you know, despite all this talk about how that relates to business, you didn't go directly into business by any means. No. I mean, you've done some <laughs> consulting for a long time, kind of, you know, on the side, but you were in academia for, you know, 15 or so years. So... You know, one of the great things to come out of that is the, the business anthropology certificate. And but you know, it's uh, I guess it also brings up the question, you know, like why change sort of mid-career, you know, even though you're doing some consulting on the side, why why make the change to go full time into business? Yeah. So what I did as as far as I know is extremely rare, right? So most folks who transition out of academia into the private sector, I think usually do it either while they're still doing their grad program or right after their grad program, or maybe maybe they're, you know, doing various adjunct professorships and not having luck getting a tenure track, or they even started a tenure track and for whatever reason, it was not working out the way they hoped. And so they decided to, you know, go into more applied work. I was actually a tenured full professor, <laughs> And I was graduate coordinator of our, our master's program in social science. Um, and, you know, I guess I'm a uh, perpetual, I don't know, overachiever, always wanting more options because I was really starting to feel like I had kind of done all I could do in academia. Like, that was it, you know, um, and I was 42. <laughs> so, you know, that was odd because I didn't plan to retire for at least 40 more years or 35. We'll see how good my health is. Uh, but so, you know, I thought, you know, I really want more options. And, you know, doing the academic path can be very narrow. You have to meet certain milestones. And with some rare exceptions of people who are able to overcome all kinds of odds, you have to meet them in a certain time period, right? Because it's really tough if you go back and do your PhD later in life, for example, to get one of those tenure track assistant professor jobs, right? There's definitely like an ageist bias and all that kind of stuff. So it was weird to be on the other end and feel like I did it. 
now what? <laughs> you know, like, now what are my options? And I didn't see a whole lot of options, to be honest. Um, and I think another important thing I'd like to mention, because I think, unfortunately, when we're talking about careers, sometimes we shy away from talking about the personal side of things, right? And, you know, for me, I really much wanted to be a mom and have a family. And um, I am the kind of person that if you try to tell me, oh, well, you can't, you know, be a good academic or a good anthropologist or archaeologist and be a mom, I'm first thing I'm going to do is go prove you wrong. So, <laughs> uh, so, you know, and I had, unfortunately, uh, professors who said those things to me as a grad student. And it just, you know, actually, it was usually sexist statements about, you know, why we train women. They just go off and have babies, right? Um, so I actually had my son uh, right about the time I got tenure. Um, so, you know, I that, that didn't stop me from becoming a full professor. Um, but I just realized that, you know, continuing to work internationally and have the sort of family life that I wanted to have was going to be extremely difficult. And you get to a point where, you know, your priorities shift, right? I'd already done some amazing, I, I am thrilled and grateful that I got to do the amazing work I was able to do internationally. And I, I still, you know, when he's older, might go back to working more interla- internationally, but I want to be around, you know, and um, didn't want everything to be super hard. <laughs> so, you know, it just, the, the private sector became more and more appealing, you know, um, and I just realized I had so many more options. And the wonderful thing is, as you alluded to, it doesn't mean I have to stop teaching forever because I created this business anthropology program. Um, you know, they still teach it at Clemson for the students for credit. And then at the moment, I'm still teaching it for professionals online. So I, I kind of feel like I won the lotto because I get the best of both worlds now. <laughs> And no uh, pressure to publish anymore. <laughs> Did that already too. Yeah. So, you know, I, I can see why you would make the change, but there's also some other considerations, you know, when making such a change. Um, you know, obviously being at such a stage in your career, there's, you know, financial considerations. Um, you know, of course, there's geographic considerations. You know, are you in a in a location where you can find adequate work? You know, at sort of your seniority, et cetera, et cetera. Right? And there's all these sort of other things that you know. If you're, I don't know, I, you know, if you're young, maybe you sort of you know kind of take what you take wherever it is, right? At at that time in your life, but you have a family, you know, again, you have sort of, you've reached a certain status. So not all jobs are applicable, right. Or, or desirable maybe at that point. So there's obviously some challenges there that maybe some of us, you know, who have kind of come right out of the programs and gone into, to work have not dealt with. So anything that would be interesting to share for other listeners who are in a similar place? Cause you know, actually, if I could just comment, you said that you think you did something rare and I, I imagine it is rarer, but I've had a fair amount of people who are in a similar place who are now thinking about leaving after, you know, sustained time in academia. So I think more people are realizing that, you know, there's other options out there and maybe that's because of, you know, politics that, you know, in academia, you know, changing sort of nature of academia. But nonetheless, there's there's more people who I think are now mid-career and making, looking to make the change. So how about all oh, those things, you know? pandemic especially. 
Yeah, yeah, sure, right. So how about like, you know, any any thoughts on that? Um, any Anything you learned by by doing that at your stage in the career? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you hit on most of it. Um, you know, when we apply for academic jobs as anthropologists, you know, one thing we don't have that maybe, you know, super in-demand professions might have available to them is geographic choice, right? So I realized when I applied for academic jobs that I was going to have to be willing to go where the job was. And I had certain things I wasn't willing to do. Like, I'm just not a winter person, so I could not survive like Michigan. (laughs) I just would be miserable, like in the upper Midwest or something like that. Um, But other than that, you know, I, when I took the job at Clemson, I didn't know a single soul in the entire state of South Carolina, had no background family history there, nothing, had to go there alone as a single woman. And let me tell you, that was not fun for dating. Um, And so you make those sacrifices when you take an academic job as an anthropologist a lot of times. Like you said, once you have a family and and a partner who has a job, and, you know, I also happen to have stepchildren who are at various stages of their schooling you can't just do the same thing again, usually. You can't just be like, I'm just going to go wherever I find the best job, right? So yeah, I I spent several years um, looking nearby, you know, mostly for me, the nearest towns, the bigger cities were, you know, Charlotte and Atlanta. Um, And unfortunately for me, the Southeast was just not really getting the whole idea of how someone with a PhD and an academic background was going to be super Uh, beneficial for their business. The good news is I have a wonderful partner. My husband um, was like, look, babe, it's not working out here. So where else should we look? You know, and you don't always have that, you know, like it could have been if my, for example, if my stepkids had been younger, I would have just had to keep looking. Um, But luckily they were getting old enough. They were going off to college. And, um, so, you know, we said, okay, we would be willing to go to D.C. because we would still be on the East Coast where the kids were, but not super far, you know. Um, and uh, I just found that D.C., first job I applied to hired me in five weeks. I mean, they understand in this area, and I think a lot of the larger cities, you know, probably L.A., New York, San Francisco, maybe Chicago, like they understand the value of someone with an advanced degree. and you have less of a job convincing them of that. Whereas, you know, I went through hiring processes, for example, with Charlotte-based businesses where I'd go through four or five interviews. I was clearly one of their top candidates and not get offered the job. And I was fortunate, you know, most of the time they won't give you feedback to let you know what, what was it that didn't make the cut. But I had one hiring manager who I ended up basically becoming friends with and presenting with at Epic, <laughs> Who was, who was willing to share with me, she said, you know, you made me realize something. You made me realize I have a bias against academics. I just assume that, you know, they're not going to be able to cut it. In the business world, you know, with our fast-paced environment and the practicalities of serving our clients and, um, you know, they're just going to be spouting Foucault in the clouds. And, uh, you know, I, of course, disabused her of those ideas <laughs> and explained how, you know, especially in my past, you know, I, I was working in a developing country on a shoestring budget, you know, with a team of 30 people. So, you know, that blew her mind, you know, 
Um, so unfortunately, if you are dealing with those smaller markets, you probably will have to do a lot more explaining of how your background and training is extremely useful and um, transferable to the business world. Is there anything that you observed, you know, when, when say, going from the Charlotte market to the D.C. market? I know you said that they just kind of got it in the D.C. market. But is, did they say anything that maybe helped give you some indication of how somebody could present themselves better in a market like Charlotte? I mean, not from talking to folks in D.C., but from talking to folks in Charlotte, yes. Uh, so, I mean, I think you really need to just, you know, as anthropologists, we learn how to adapt to different cultures and how to, you know, literally speak languages that are not our first language. It's the same thing for the business world. You need to steep yourself in the lingo of the business world and things that at first sound really strange to you you know, after time and practice, just like anywhere else you would go in the world are going to become very natural. I mean, for example, just the incredible use of acronyms in the business world, which confusingly can change from company to company. So be careful with that. But, you know, just knowing things like what's a KPI, what's ROI, you know, like very, very common acronyms that are used in the business world. Um, Being able to, you know, instead of saying like, I could tell somebody, hey, I ran an archaeological dig in Peru uh, with 30 people over the course of you know, about seven years, they're not going to like turn that into, I know how to manage people. I know how to manage teams. I know how to um, create cross-disciplinary collaborations. I can manage a budget, right? Like you have to translate all of those things into business speak, right? And that's got to all be on your resume because, you know, you're not even going to get to the interview to explain it if it's not already there. Sure. So, yeah, the more that you can, you know, pair up with someone who has that knowledge, whether it's through if you're still in school, through the career center or uh, if you're already out of school, just uh, talking to friends and colleagues. And there's even if you have the money, it can be expensive. There's even folks you can hire to help you do that. So. Yeah. And so how did you go about that? Did you sort of just naturally push your way through it or, um, or kind of oh, have your intuition to do it? I did all of the it? above except pay somebody. <laughs> so, I mean, I started reading stuff, you know, you get onto sites like LinkedIn and start learning, like, what are people posting about? What is sort of the way that people present themselves? Although I know that's been changing lately too. It's been a little bit less purely professional in business than it used to be lately, but you know, every every person who wants to make it in the business world from academia has got to be on LinkedIn. Like academics don't even care about LinkedIn. If, if you Amazing. want to be found in the business world, you need a good LinkedIn profile. And, you know, same thing that applies to your resume applies to that. Um, so I took tips from the career center that was talking to my students. I mean, my, they were telling my students how to present themselves on LinkedIn. And I was like, mm, let me take some notes here, you know. So, you know, the same stuff that they were getting from the Career Center, I was using, talking to, to friends. And, you know, frankly, I, again, I have an amazingly supportive partner who, you know, my husband was happy to be like, well, hon, you've done this, this, and this. Let's put that on your resume, right? Like, because he could see, knowing me and knowing all that I had done, how that would work in his world, because he's in fintech. So, like, he could figure out and help me with that. Um, and then eventually, and this is tougher, 
it is tough, or at least in my experience, to actually get to the recruiter phase where you're talking to recruiters. But if you can connect with recruiters, they can be extremely helpful because, you know, especially for folks who might be a little further along in their careers and really need that recruiter connection, they can tell you what they're looking for to pick you out of LinkedIn. And so that, to me, that was kind of like a weird, a weird graduation day. The first time that a recruiter that I had no idea what job they were looking for reached out to me. I had not applied to the job and they just contacted me out of the blue. And I I thought I was being spammed. (laughs) And my husband was like, this looks legit. You know, (laughs) like you should talk to them. So, you know, that those are things that, you know, it just takes a lot of time and practice and using your network and every resource you can find and don't be shy about it. Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned recruiters, where I was going to then go with that was, was networking. And so, you know, I know from just various things that you're involved in that, you know, you have, you have a network, you, you know, people in the industry. So, um, you know, aside from just you know, applying, were you also sort of trying to work through your network? Yeah, a little bit, but you know, it's always tough for, for folks who have a job and are, thinking about moving on to another job, you have to be a little bit more cautious. You can't, I mean, one thing I think students and folks that are recent graduates have an advantage of is they can just fly the flag that they're looking for work, right? And that's tougher to do if you're not trying to get kicked out of your current job (laughs) before you find the next one, you know? So you, you, yes, but you have to be a little more uh, discreet about how you do that, you know? So... But yes, yeah, you probably I mean, can't go to career services and ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, except, you know, you can to some extent because, you know, just like you would have like doctor patient privilege, you can ask if, you know, if you're an academic at a university, you can go to career services and say, hey, I really would like to ask some questions. Can you keep this confidential? And unless they just have no ethical sense, I think they will do that. So. So fast forward, and you're at Hanover Research now in the D.C. area. You know, you're uh, in a director role, so you're not conducting much research, is my understanding, mostly leading. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's a wall. I mean, you were planning the anthropological project, uh, sorry, the, the archaeological project. So you obviously had leadership capacity back then as, as well. Um but you know, doing the being in a director role is very different than being hands-on. So, kind of curious for somebody who you know likes research. You know, is there a reason you you felt that you wanted to be in you know in a director role versus some kind of like you know senior research role? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm still not opposed to being the person doing the hands-on research, and of course, whenever my team needs me, I can jump in there. You know. It just so happened that until recently, I was the only person uh, on my team who spoke enough Spanish to do any Spanish language interviews. So if we needed one or two done, I was the one who was doing those. Um, In fact, it got to the point where we were having such demand that I deliberately went out and hired two native Spanish speakers because I'm not supposed to be spending most of my time uh, conducting interviews. But I just got to a point even before I left academia where I really got a lot of joy out of uh, helping, you know, younger researchers develop and grow and, you know, providing them with professional development opportunities. I just really enjoy that. So, 
Um, you know, I was doing that as the graduate coordinator. I ran our professional development seminar with them for them and um, took turns with another professor doing the undergraduate professional development seminar. So that's just a, a role I enjoy. So I would say if you don't enjoy that, then no, you should not go for being, you know, a manager of a research team because I actually have a team member who that's not really her forte and she's very good at it, but that's not really her thing. She doesn't like it. So, you know, unfortunately, sometimes we have to beg her (laughs) to do it because we need her. But when we can let her out of it, I let her out of it because she likes doing the research herself, you know. Um, And I think everybody can go through, you know, fluctuations in their career where, you know, there's a time when they really want to dig in and do it all themselves. And then, you know, maybe they get a little tired of that and they want to step back a little and be the one, you know, helping coordinate and, you know, leading other folks who are doing the day-to-day operations. So I think there's a place for for both things. But one thing I would caution people who are thinking long-term about a career in business anthropology is I do think, maybe not all cases, but you're going to be asked to manage other people at some point if you want to keep climbing the ladder. So that is something to think about as you're, you know, progressing in your career is, do you want to do that? And how can you pick up those, you know, management skills and people skills along the way if that's not something that you naturally gravitate to? And also worth pointing out that if it's something that you really don't like doing, you may also be you know, you may want to say no if that opportunity is presented to you, because if you find yourself in that position and you don't like it, you know, we've all seen like, like say in the tech space, it's kind of classic, like for engineers to kind of progress into leadership roles who don't really want to be in them. And it, you know, it's, it, it depends on the person, but it, you know, if it goes wrong, you now may be out of a job. Whereas before you could have been a very high performer, you know, as an engineer say, right. And so, um, you know, it's also good to kind of know, Obviously, you know, we, we we can grow, we can learn, we can change. But, you know, if you really don't like it, it's good to know the limitations as well. Yeah, absolutely. And depending on the company and what roles they have available, I think it's pretty fair to say in most smaller companies, you're going to hit a glass ceiling, right? If you're not interested in managing people. If you're maybe at a giant corporation, maybe there's more room for you to continue on being an individual contributor, but I mean, I, I can I can say at least at my current company, we're relatively small and you, you just can't get beyond a certain point if you're not willing to manage people. So, sure. yeah, there's a I over the years, I've for about a decade now, I've worked with um, company in the career development area and they I think the saying is up is not the only way out, which comes from one of the, the books they've written in. It, you know, more or less the kind of point is, is though, say in a large organization, it's again, harder in small ones, but you can oftentimes find, you know, if you're creative, you can find interesting lateral moves to make. Uh-huh. Um, you know, some of that comes like from being kind of like an entrepreneur and finding your own opportunities and maybe, you know, sort of starting something up. But, you know, if you get creative and you really don't like that and you're in a larger place, there's oftentimes opportunity. I mean, even in small ones, there is oftentimes the opportunity to sort of create something new if you're willing to take the lead and sort of dig in and do that. So just worth pointing out. Uh, But to come back to something you just said, so your team is small. And so while this is not always the case, um, 
you know, oftentimes I find in smaller organizations, you know, there might, um, the research area might have gone through less of like a formalization process or maybe less of a maturity process, you know, maybe it's even kind of new to the organization just, you know, in terms of years. So sometimes in environments like that, we have to do a lot of educating and, and again, we have to do a lot of educating usually, but oftentimes in smaller places, it seems like there's a little bit more to do early on. And, um, so I'm wondering if you have any experiences there and sort of what you do to sell the value of see, not just anthropology, but, you know, social science and the kind of research that we do within the business context. Yeah. And, and I mean, I'm fortunate that, you know, since I'm at a market research firm, um, I mean, I don't really have to sell the value of, you know, being a good researcher and applying best practices and all of that to our internal colleagues. But we certainly may have to explain things to our external clients. And for us, what's a little bit more challenging is specifically the the qualitative piece, because, um, you know, a lot of firms start with things like survey or secondary research, and maybe especially with the advent of big data and analytics, you know, gotten into the quantitative piece. And tech world, of course, has latched on to qualitative, but some other areas of business have not. And so you really do have to be willing in a very like non-condescending, simple way, explain to clients the value of qualitative research. And, you know, I always love to use examples, you know, saying things like, you know, granted now with COVID, we haven't been getting to do much observational research, but you know, people will often tell you one thing in a survey, but actually do another, right? And so the only way you're going to know that they're actually doing something different from what they told you is having that qualitative piece, right? Um, so, or even just, you know, you don't know if you're asking the right questions, if they're all closed-ended questions, right? If you're just, you know, in a survey, you give people what, four or five options or you have a Likert scale one to five, um, you know, if you don't have open-ended questions and let someone lead a conversation down a road you weren't expecting, you have no idea what insights that you're not going to discover if you don't do that qualitative piece. So um, I like I like trying to explain to them how important it is to consider, depending on what their business problem is, mm-hmm. you know, having a qualitative component to that research. So, and that's that's something I'm just going to keep refining and refining because you're going to have to make those uh, explanations and speeches over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and, you know, that's, I mean, we're in a similar position to some degree in that, you know, if you're sort of like, you know, Red Associates or IDO or Stripe Partners or somebody who has some name recognition, right? When people are coming to you, you know, they, they kind of have an idea of what they're asking for, even if they don't fully understand it. But like oftentimes, you know, we have clients, you know, some of which are quite small, um, some of which are global, but they still don't get it. And some of which are quite small and certainly don't even like, you know, aren't even asking for research when say maybe I'm bringing it up and suggesting that we ought to do this, you know, before we just build something. And so in those situations, I'm having the same kind of, kind of conversations, but it's, um, you know, I still find that even though if you explain it that way, that the uh, the degree of acceptance varies widely. And, 
Um, you know, there's lots of reasons for that, I'm sure, some of which is time and budget, you know, and um, sometimes we just, you know, they don't have the money to do it or the time to do it. But other times, you know, it's, there's like an interest and maybe there's time and budget, but like, you know, it still doesn't go somewhere. It's still maybe not clicking. So is there anything that, you know, maybe you've learned through sort of selling this, if you will, that uh, aside from kind of the way you just described it, any like kind of particular strategy maybe that you found really interesting, uh, even in the way you present it, like with any aids or anything that you sort of bring in or any case studies, and um, you know, maybe not the specific data of the case studies, but is there anything that you found as like an aid that really helps you kind of convey to somebody? Oh, yeah. I mean, I I tend to rely heavily on sort of the classic examples that I use in my business anthropology class. So, you know, one of my favorites is the story of Gogurt with Susan Squire's study. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not to recap that whole thing, people can look it up if they're interested. But, you know, it was a very similar situation where, you know, parents were telling this breakfast food company one thing about how they feed their kids breakfast, very nutritious, very important, all this. And then lo and behold, she goes into their homes to watch them actually getting out the door in the morning and sees a whole different story of, you know, how kids are just, you know, throwing their breakfast in the trash, not touching it or stealing a snack from the cupboard or what. I mean, all these different things she watched. And lo and behold, it ends up developing a whole new product to serve a need that that company, had they not done that research, wouldn't have known their customers had because their customers weren't telling them that. And, you know, um, there's Trisha Wang's famous TED Talk where she talks about, you know, the work she did in China and trying to explain to Nokia, you know, how excited even low-income people were about these smartphones. And, you know, they said, well, we didn't get that in our survey data. Well, you didn't ask that question. You didn't know to ask the question, Right. So I like using those very concrete examples of things people know. Most people know what Gogurt is, at least in the U.S. Like they know that Nokia is no longer the dominant cell phone company in the world that it used to be. You know, so you can use these really concrete examples of how, you know, you can win by doing this type of qualitative research or you can lose out by ignoring it. And I think that really brings it home to people but you're potentially challenging. I mean, this goes back to the whole, you know, ontological perspective. You're challenging their worldview, right? Because, you know, for a lot of business folks, we're at a point in history where data is king and they want to know all about the metrics and they're easily dazzled, frankly, <laughs> by, you know, doing some, you know, big data analytics and showing them lovely, you know, graphics. And you can do awesome visualizations with that stuff. But that won't tell you why. Right. So I think that's always a great thing to to uh, present the case for a mixed method study, right? Like, yes, let's use all this wonderful sales data you have. Let's see what your patterns are, what's winning, what's not winning. And then let's ask people why, which you can't do with that data. So. Yeah. The, uh, you know, I, I, well, I studied under Dr. Squires and so I, I use some of the same examples and, you know, I, and have also used, um, you know, Colagard and a few others and find them instructive, but uh, still, I guess, to your point about how you're sort of, you know, you're, you're sort of pushing up against their worldview a bit, you know, sometimes it's, it is still a bit challenging 
because, you know, conveying, while we can kind of describe that Nokia fell off of cliff, and that is more or less, you know, it's that's kind of easy to understand. Still a little bit about what we deliver and how we deliver that is still a little nebulous oftentimes. And so, you know, to building on that comment, I'd like to maybe get into a little bit about you know, this sort of research leadership in the sense that you, you know, ultimately you are, you know, leading these researchers, you need to sort of gauge their performance kind of collectively as a team, you need to sell it and convince, you know, your clients. Um, so that, you know, not just that you present interesting insights, but so that they can, you know, use them ultimately, right. So that they're applicable. And so, for, to to sort of pick off a little bit of that first, when you're leading, you know, other jun- you know junior researchers or senior whatever their titles are, how do you go about you know really assessing sort of their value and their contribution? Because oftentimes we hear, and I even heard it in the um, I don't know if you were online for the last session of the Global Business Anthropology Summit, the one that was on branding of business anthropology. You know, Bob Marais was speaking. Um, Not this year's. No, I did two years ago. I did a workshop with Adam Gamwell on rebranding anthropology. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and so we'll come to that. But, you know, somebody, there was a presentation sort of leading up to Bob speaking. And, you know, there was a question at the very end of it, you know, like, I don't remember the exact question, but it was something like, you know, how do you demonstrate ROI? And it, this kind of thing keeps coming up and up. And so I'm curious to dig into that because of the role you're in. And the classic way of asking that is, again, like sort of how do we sort of gauge that from a client perspective? But you also kind of, you know, in your role, you need to understand that from an, you know, an employee perspective, are they sort of contributing? And so, you know, I'd be curious to have any of your thoughts, obviously, if there's anything sort of, um, you know, intellectual property wise about how you're gauging people that you can't talk about, obviously, just skip over it. But, you know, I'd, I'd like to get any input you have on how do you go about first sort of gauging the you know, the work of your, of your team. Yeah. And I think this is a great thing for people to know who, who want to go into this type of work, you know, specifically in my case, market research, um, because it's not just about, I mean, yes, it's definitely, definitely helpful to have the social science training, to have an understanding for how to look at human behavior. I personally am biased towards anthropology, of course, and and maybe sociology, because I feel like we are usually better trained to look at the diversity of human experience as compared to some of the other social sciences that might not, you know, approach things from quite as cross-cultural a perspective. Um, But when it comes to assessing, like, your researchers' performance, it's more than just knowing your methods and knowing how to execute a particular method, you know, whether it's an interview, conducting an interview or moderating a focus group. Um, It's also being able to make those connections between what is your client's business problem and how are you going to get the information that could help them with that problem from the data you collected, right? And can you then go one step further and give them actionable steps to take to try and address that business problem. And that's that's something that just takes time and experience. And, you know, frankly, you can always get better at that. I mean, including me, of course, um, because the more experience you have in a particular industry, 
the more you might have better ideas for how this business problem could be addressed. But even mundane things are important. Like you can be, you know, really insightful and come up with great recommendations. But if you can't finish your your project by the deadline I gave you, we got a problem, right? Like you've got to have time management skills. You've got to have project management skills. Uh, You got to use all that critical thinking you hopefully learned in school because I rely, I have actually 12 people on my team right now. So I cannot possibly know all the minutiae that they're dealing with for each project at one time, because they're doing multiple projects at a time, by the way. Um, So I rely on them to use those critical thinking skills and notice when something's going to be a problem, right? So that could be something as simple as like, wow, we don't have a long enough contact list to get a decent number of interviews for this project. Or it could be something much deeper like, the research questions I was given to start from don't sound to me like what the client's talking about. Like maybe we're not in alignment here and we need to actually change the focus of this project before we get any deeper because the client's talking about, you know, for example, uh, they want to hear from the community, right? They want to know what the community is looking for in their services. But this research question is talking about asking employers what they're looking for to hire people in the community. Those don't seem to be very well aligned. So let's dig into that. So, you know, when you can rely on someone to not only know their methods, execute the project correctly and well on time and be able to spot potential problem areas, I mean, then you know they are really, they've really got it down. They know what they're doing. And that's incredibly uh you know, comforting that you don't have to be constantly looking over their shoulder and worried like, oh, somebody's going to fall through the cracks. We're going to have to clean up a mess. You know, like that's really important. So, you know, in the research space, there's obviously a lot of unknown unknowns that if you're removed from the actual research, you don't necessarily, you know, you as the leader can't know if, they are, whoever they is, in this case, like whoever the researcher is, is still missing those unknown unknowns. And so, you know, it could be then that they're delivering potentially on time, and maybe it seems like it's aligned, you know, with the business, you know, but it still might not deliver the intended results. Now, I appreciate this is a little bit hard because you're essentially a consultative or kind of agency model, like we are most of the time. Um and so you sometimes are a little bit removed from like what happens after you kind of, you know, do the readout or throw your kind of results over the wall. But do you try to then connect the researcher's performance to any kind of outcomes from from like a, you know, outcomes from a client perspective? When they let us know, sure. <laughs> like we always, always, always ask for feedback and uh, you know, we encourage them to let us know how they were able, part of our, our, we have like an actual form that asks them, how are you going to apply the research that we did for you? And so just like any other time you're trying to get feedback from a client, unfortunately, we don't get as much of a response rate as we would like from those. Um, and when you do get a response, it tends to be one of two extremes, right? They loved it. It was fabulous. We're going to use it this way. It's going to revolutionize our product line, whatever. Or 
this is not what we wanted at all. This is, you know, you tend to get like people who are either really happy or, or really unhappy as opposed to like, well, this is useful, but I don't know, maybe we could have done something else, you know. So uh, we can't really closely tie, you know, like the assessment of anyone's, any one researcher's performance to how, you know, their research was applied to the business. But we certainly try to take the opportunity to, you know, call out and recognize those folks when we do find out that, hey, they not only loved what you did for them, they were able to really use this uh, in a positive way. So, yes, and we would love it if more clients would share how they're using it. But since we're, you know, an external uh, agency and not in-house, yeah, we don't always have, unfortunately, that information. Yeah, obviously, you know, speaking again from like the tech perspective, it's much easier in say like a quote-unquote product company However, you know, from the people I talk to, and it hasn't been anybody that I've asked so overtly on this podcast, but just from like, you know, colleagues, networking kind of, doesn't seem like many people are tied back to really the performance of say the product they're working on, which is kind of surprising to me, um, which, you know, in a lot of products I think can be done, you know, a lot of tech products, especially that have dollars attached to them can be done, I think a little bit more clearly. Um, I mean, if you're working on something foundational, you know, like what is trust? I, I get that that's a little harder, but um, uh, but I'm still sort of surprised to see how few are doing that when it seems like there's an ability to do it. But anyway, thanks for well, sharing. I, also think, always- I mean, that gets into what Bob, I think, has spoken to and even written about in terms of, you know, trying to put anthropologists in places and companies where they can actually impact strategy and implementation. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, so often we are in the situation that my team is where we're external and we don't have you know that position of of power or authority to to influence directly like how our work is applied and i mean you definitely get the the subgroup of clients who they just wanted their own bias confirmed and you either did that and they're thrilled or you didn't and they're unhappy right like so i think the problem is when you're um, not the decision maker that can then implement, you know, the results of the research into the product. You have a whole other level of convincing to do because, you know, a lot of times when they come to us, they already know what they want to do, right? So if it's not a truly exploratory project, you might have limited ability to influence how that product might be changed. So. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a fair point. And you know, since you mentioned, you know, the the need for more of us to be in strategy, which is something that I think, you know, a good sign is I I keep hearing that coming up more frequently than I would have years ago. Um, and as somebody who you know works in a product role who's directly connected to strategy, I mean, I think we're really you know well suited for those kind of roles. But there's other roles we're well suited for as well. So just out of curiosity, you know, given, you know, given your career and sort of, you know, just your viewpoint of where you're at, besides like a classic sort of, you know, kind of qual researcher, or mixed methods researcher, or UX researcher, or whatever title somebody sort of takes today, you see other opportunities in the business space for anthropologists, you know, whether that's strategy roles yes. or in my case, product <laughs> management. Yes, I, I really really would love to see more anthropologists go into diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Yeah, and makes sense. Like, there should be more of us, frankly, in the HR space. Because, 
you know, we are trained and usually we got into this because we have an interest in working with people, right? And I, I hope that most of us have an interest in having a positive impact on people in our communities. And, you know, especially anthropologists with our cross-cultural training, I think we are perfect for working in the diversity and inclusion space. And, um, you know, I have done some of that, you know, in the last seven-ish years, um, but I've always had an interest in it. I, I minored and, and had a graduate certificate in gender studies. Um, and, you know, I think it's really important because on the one hand, I mean, I'm a white woman, so I I don't have, um, you know, the position to contribute of a person of color. However, um, there are plenty of folks out there that might need to hear something from a white person that they wouldn't be as receptive to from a person of color, for better or for worse, right? So, you know, I actually had our chief diversity officer at Clemson say that to me because I was all concerned. I was like, I don't know, should I be trying to do this stuff, you know, as a white person? And he's like, Melissa, we need white folks to join us in this work because if it's just us, it's easier to dismiss us, you know? And I that really, like, was a light bulb for me. So, you know, I think anybody who has the interest, who feels passionately about it, like, I think that's a fabulous area for anthropologists to go into. For sure. Anything in the HR space, really. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and HR is something that I haven't really touched on in this podcast yet, though I, I am trying. I, I thought I had one lined up, but it fell through. So, um, you know, maybe later we can talk if you know anybody, but uh, or if anybody out there listening is is in the field, feel free to reach out to me. But um, so to to pivot from, you know, what you're currently doing a bit, um, you so you have an interest in raising the you know visibility of business anthropology, broadly speaking, you know, you, you've done a lot of things within that capacity, including the, the workshop that you and Adam did at the Global Business Anthropology Summit that was at Fordham, which now seems like forever ago. Um, I guess that was 2019. Um, so, you know, I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask the question anyway for those who might not know your opinion. Um, but do you think business anthropology has a branding problem? Well, I th- I would say anthropology has a branding uh, problem yeah, because most people don't know business anthropology exists, right? Even within anthropology, people don't know business anthropology exists. Yeah. Yeah, fair <laughs> so, point. yeah, I mean, I, and I'm far from the first person to bring this up. Uh, but, you know, ever since Margaret Mead passed away, we have not had a well-known figure out there that's speaking to the public on a regular basis and helping them understand what we do, what we contribute, what our expertise is, you know. And I think there's a whole group of folks right now, fantastically, that are trying to do just that for business anthropology It'd be great if we did that for all of anthropology, not just business anthropology. But I feel like, you know, obviously, as business anthropologists, we have a big stake in, you know, making sure people understand outside of the academic world what we do and how we can contribute. Um, But yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you ask just somebody walking down the street, what does a psychologist do? They may not know all the details. They may not know all the subfields, all the different ways psychology is applied. 
but they probably can give you a decent idea of at least one type of psychology. I'm not sure the same could be said for anthropology, which is a shame. And, you know, we see that reflected, unfortunately, especially during the pandemic, uh, in the shrinking of anthropology programs, right? So, you know, absolutely, I think we all need to be much more engaged with the public and, you know, get out there and, you know, just like what you're doing, Matt, with your podcast and, um, you know, other folks getting involved in various public endeavors, whether it's locally in their community or, you know, writing for national newspapers or any way they can to explain, you know, I mean, Helen Fisher is the only person I can think of who's really gotten her name out there recently that people might recognize, you know, as an anthropologist. So, um, yeah, we need, we all need to work on that. And it's going to be up to anthropologists because nobody's going to do it for us. Yeah. And, you know, to be you know, to drop another name, Jillian Tett and her new book, Anthrovision, yes. right, is also doing it. Um, I could grab it and hold it up for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was in the other room, but... Um, Here. Here we go. There you go, there Jillian. Go. Shout out to your new book. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yes, there are more, yes. And, um, you know, there are some initiatives going on, such as what, you know, Bob was doing at the Global Business Anthropology Summit to sort of build on what you and Adam started. And so there's, you know, this sort of initiative around for anybody who doesn't know about sort of branding business anthropology, kind of first here in the States, but then maybe, you know, maybe that has some applicability globally, maybe it doesn't, you know, who knows, but, um, you know, the, that process is being worked through. There's, of course, also businessanthro.com, right? So there's all these little things that are happening and, yeah. um, and that's all great, but it's, um, you know, we still have the problem and, and it's a related problem, but we still have the problem that most people don't know what anthropology is, like you said, but also that they should be hiring, you know, anthropologists for these roles uh, or that we're even, you know, we're, we're even sort of in the same, you know, that we're even in the running for them in many ways. And so while I think it's good that we all are sort of working on these initiatives, you know, to be critical of like, say what I'm doing, I most of the people who seem to interact with my content, at least on LinkedIn, because if, you know, if you listen to a podcast, I don't know who you are that's listening. But if you interact on LinkedIn, I can obviously see, you know, your background. Most people who interact, you know, on LinkedIn are anthropologists. They are not people from the business space, broadly speaking, you know, non-anthropologists. And so, you know, in my case, they could be UX researchers, they could be other qualitative or social scientists, say, but it doesn't seem to get too much outside of that yet. So I guess the question is, seeing as you've thought about this a little, aside from all the efforts that we're engaged in, you know, what can we do to move beyond just sort of like telling ourselves how good we are? Yeah, I mean, you have to engage with folks that are already in the business world. And, you know, I mean, I know, for example, you know, Bob teaches in a business school, right? I mean, to be, if you are teaching, reach out to your business school and see if you can teach the business students because they may not be interested in majoring in anthropology, but I would bet you they would really benefit from one or two classes with an anthropologist and it's going to make them better business people to have a more global mindset or to have a better understanding of human cultures and human behavior, you know? Um, so yeah, whether it's doing it from an academic perspective where you're getting involved. I mean, when I was creating the business anthropology program at Clemson, I actually created an interdisciplinary curriculum committee. So we had 
you know, faculty from marketing, from industrial and organizational psychology, from the uh, management program, from the MBA program. Um, we were starting before I left to reach out to engineering even because, you know, engineers nowadays absolutely need to have an understanding of people and human behavior, or at least be willing to collaborate with folks who have an understanding of people and human behavior. And, you know, funding organizations have already recognized this, right? So many big organizations like National Science Foundation require big engineering grants to have a social scientist on their team. Um, Obviously, many of the big tech companies have already recognized that if they're going to, you know, deal with human behavior, they need social scientists on their staff. So I think there's a multitude of ways that you can engage people outside of anthropology to understand the value of anthropology. I mean, Jillian's book and other people's book are trying to do the same thing. Um, You know, the fact that we're being active in spaces like LinkedIn or the Financial Times that aren't just, you know, central to the anthropology profession, but to the larger business world is really important. So, and and that's one thing that I wanted to do, um, you know, that really doesn't fit super well, frankly, with an academic career and was one of the littler pushes for me to leave academia is I wanted to be able to write and speak to the public. And in academia, that's like, oh, that's great. That's nice, right? But you got to find time for that on top of what they really care about. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is the grants, which is the research publications. Right. So, you know, I think those of us that are already out there in the private sector, you know, if we don't already have enough to do, but like finding ways to, you know, um, let, let's let's say you're in a different type of professional organization, like a marketing association. Right. Like, see if you can give a little talk to them about the importance of anthropology or the social sciences to marketing, right? Like branch out beyond us all speaking to each other. But I mean, that's the start. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, that's really, you know, was the sort of basis of my TED talk, which was intentionally to try and popularize it, you know, to a much bigger audience. Um, And I don't go deep, you know, on, I don't hammer on anthropology in that. I just sort of drop it um, at the outro. But you know, that got more traction than anything else that I've worked on so far. And so, you know, I think it's those kind of outlets that um, are, are really going to help bring it to, you know, a broader audience. But it's also, you know, um, you know, other forms of media, I think, is is a, is a portion yeah. of it. And, you know, certainly like, you know, the, the certificate that you're involved in, we'll touch on that in just a second. I think that's great to sort of start influencing the next generation because even the other day I had somebody who reached out who went through the program you know was was seemed to really like the program but they came from a different background so that influences the next generation but it doesn't necessarily like reach maybe the current generation of power if you will right and so I and 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 so that brings up like you know I I do think other forms of media are, are helpful but it's I think it's also a question of what form of media because you know the podcast, this, you know, I can't speak of podcast broadly, but like my podcast listening audience tends to be younger, right? So if I, you know, I'm not sure that this podcast is ever going to, well, I should maybe shouldn't say it that way, but like if I'm thinking of targeting like positions of power who are non-anthropologists, maybe this isn't the best avenue, right? But maybe there are other 
mediums that would be better. Um, I don't have the answer to that today, but I just think that we need to keep all of those things in mind because you know clearly we need to to take this beyond ourselves because we oftentimes get in a room and tell each other how great we are, but I, I don't see enough non-anthropologists in those rooms to hear it. Yeah, but I think, you know, kudos to you for making the cut on your TED Talk, because that takes a level of skill at public speaking and shaping your ideas, because I actually tried to get a TED I did our little local Greenville competition, and I made the first cut, and then I didn't make the next cut to make it, you know, into the, the bigger TEDx Greenville presentation. So it's practice, and it's developing those skills. And, you know, like you said, I'm going to throw out a generalization that may not be true, but maybe folks over 50 in positions of power aren't listening to a lot of podcasts. I don't know. Um, And so we need to write op-eds for the, you know, Washington Post and the New York Times, right? Like, that's why Jillian's work with the Financial Times is so important, right? So, yeah, absolutely. Using different forms of media and different venues to reach different folks. And agreed. And so maybe to close, so, you know, you've done your own you know, bit in, in helping that, like I said, I, you know, I had this person who went through the, the program, the Clemson University Business Anthropology Certificate Program, again, non-anthropologist who went through that. So obviously, you know, what you did there to help start that is, uh, is sort of helping to you know, train another generation of people who maybe are coming from other disciplines. So I think that's great. So thanks for all you did there. Uh, and maybe we can just kind of talk about it a bit. So for anybody who's listening that hasn't come across any of it yet, um, you want to maybe just give us the the elevator pitch? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm going to speak mostly to the online professional certificate because that's basically open to anyone from any background. Um, it's totally geared towards folks who already, you know, have to balance their day job with, you know, taking a class or two. So this is not the same intensity as, you know, a full-time for credit program. If you want that, however, and you happen to be able to connect with Clemson, that is still available through Clemson. But, you know, the one that I'm offering online, this is a great chance either if you don't have a social science background to learn a little about why having some social science knowledge could be advantageous to you in the business world. So it's it's a three-course certificate. The first one is a business anthropology overview, where we basically touch on what anthropology can contribute to the business world in, in the sort of three major areas, which is market research, um, organizational culture, and design anthropology. And we weave into that a little bit of the international and intercultural components, because that's, I think, a super important way that anthropology can help business folks develop a global mindset and really reach um, you know, new audiences they might not have even thought about before. The second course is your basic overview of qualitative methods and very much for applied settings. So not for someone who's trying to have an academic career. You know, this is all project-based learning, by the way. You have to do a project for both courses and you have to do it in a very short amount of time because that's what you're going to have to do in the business world. You're not going to have six months, a year, two years, to do your project. You're going to have a few weeks, right? Maybe if you're lucky, two months at most, right? Um, So you do project-based learning, you learn your business anthropology overview, you learn your qualitative methods, and then we wrap it up with a capstone seminar, which is shorter, but it's a nice chance for us to talk about, okay, how do I take this learning from these two courses and now directly apply it to my career? So we talk about 
teamwork, leadership, and strategy. So, you know, how can I be a good team member? How can I be a leader? And then how am I going to be strategic about using this in my career? So, you know, we, we took one cohort through it in um, uh, winter slash spring of 2020, and it was fantastic. We had participation even from a couple folks in Europe. So you don't have to be in the U.S. to participate. We try to have the discussions at times where people in different time zones can contribute, and we record them. So if you miss it, you can listen to it. So, yeah, that was probably a little longer <laughs> than your typical elevator speech, but I can go on and on. So, yes, please shows your lineage. if you're interested. Yeah. Oh, and deadline-wise, classes start September one. And so we'd really love if folks can register, if possible, by August 1. Great. And I think, you know, for anybody listening, that's great for any of the non-anthropologists who are listening, other social scientists and UX researchers coming from different disciplines. But I think it's also good for any of us anthropologists to know that we might want to recommend to colleagues who are kind of adjacent to us, who are interested in this, maybe not to... You know, not to maybe step into our roles, but to maybe be a better team player, right? Just to know enough, you know, to to sort of uh, make for a really strong team. So I think you know it's good for any of us to recommend that, and I'll link to it, of course, in the in the uh, show notes, and have written about it actually before um, on both Business Anthro, my website. I've posted about it a few times, but I'll I'll link to it again. And so I think you're also hiring. I saw on LinkedIn, right? Oh so yes, I should mention that yes, I am hiring uh, for my team right now. I actually have a couple full time roles for uh, research analysts. So yes, look look for me on LinkedIn. I've got the posting there, or go to Hanover's uh, site, HanoverResearch.com, and under the careers. Uh, listing, you'll see that job and a number of other jobs posted for folks who might want to do survey, for example. So, And I know you just said LinkedIn, but is that the best place to find you? Yes. Okay, great. Absolutely. I, well, Melissa, thanks very much. Appreciate your time. Um, I'll link to everything and um, talk soon. Yes. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me, where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.